$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of Taylor Toller, Sean Boshuk, and Alan Penny Legion in Calgary, Canada. Let's get right to it. Calgary is the largest city in the province of Alberta, Canada. It's a growing cosmopolitan city with skyscrapers and executives in the oil industry, but also a laid-back place with plenty of outdoor activities. It's the perfect mix of city and country, and where Sean Boshuk and Alan Penny Legion called home. Sean worked as a holistic nurse, and Alan as a business development rep and football coach for the Calgary Hilltoppers. They had a yours, mine, and ours blended family. Sean came into the relationship with children, as did Al, and together they raised their blended family of five boys. According to one of the boys, Adam, who spoke on Evil Lives Here, life was good. They were your typical family. Sean was a kind and devoted mom, and Al a great dad. It doesn't appear that the biological father of Sean's children was in the picture, but Al took on the role no questions asked. Dustin Duthie was one of those children. And while Al completely accepted him from the time he came into his life when Dustin was just a toddler, according to Adam, as Dustin became a teenager, even though his parents provided him with everything he needed and wanted, Dustin was angry. It seemed he harbored resentment towards his own biological father for abandoning him and took it out on the parents who would have done anything for him. At times, that anger boiled over to his siblings. Dustin would overreact to even the smallest things. Like the time younger brother Adam was roasting him about graffiti art and his sketchbook. You know, like little brothers do. Only Dustin exploded into a fit of rage, threw a lighter at his little brother so hard it flew across the room and split his eyelid, all while screaming and cussing. Adam was injured, but Dustin didn't care. He left his brother, his eye bleeding, and stormed out of the room. As Dustin grew older, his behavior continued to escalate. 
It started with the people closest to him. Dustin stole money from his mom's wallet on multiple occasions. But then it boiled over to those outside the family. And Dustin was breaking into unlocked cars around the neighborhood and taking what he could get. In one instance, when their parents were out of town, Dustin and some friends found golf clubs in one of the cars they broke into. Dustin decided to take things to another level. He went to his junior high school, smashed out the assistant principal's window, got into the school and stole all the food from the vending machines, as well as the assistant principal's laptop. He was caught in the act, expelled from school, and received probation. But none of that seemed to matter to him. His brother recalled that he actually seemed proud of what he had done. His mom tried everything she could to help him. She tried to understand why he was so angry all the time. She tried to get him into counseling and to help him turn his life around. But Dustin learned exactly how to manipulate her. When things got serious and she tried to get him help, he would threaten that he would disappear and she'd never see him again. Things went from bad to worse when Dustin took an interest in boxing. At first, his family was hopeful. Maybe this could be therapeutic for Dustin. Maybe this was a safe outlet to help him deal with his anger. But Dustin took it to the extreme. He spent hours at the gym, sometimes going up to nine times a week. And then the steroid use began. His explosive anger only grew. And now no one was immune. At one point, he threw an axe at his brother during an argument. Thankfully, his brother was able to dodge it and wasn't hurt. But Dustin was becoming more and more unpredictable. On another occasion, he was angry about the way his brother Adam had parked his car in the driveway. After an argument, and Dustin threatening not only to beat up Adam, but also his stepdad Al, he left the house but then came back and told his entire family they were all going to get what was coming to them as he made a gun with his fingers and pointed it at each person pretending to pull the trigger. Regardless of Dustin's outburst, his family wanted nothing more than for him to get help. But it seemed the harder they pushed Dustin in that direction, the more his behavior escalated. It was a vicious cycle, and soon someone else would be caught in Dustin's cycle of abuse. Taylor Toller was born on February 22, 1994. She was her mother's first child, her grandparents' first grandchild, her aunt's first niece, and with that firstborn birthright came very special bonds, especially with her grandmother. Much of the information about Taylor's life and the events leading up to the murders comes from the podcast A Million Other Choices, which is actually hosted by Taylor's Aunt Kim and let me just say is beautifully done and gives a unique perspective from a victim's family. Y'all should check it out, because Kim Toller didn't stop at Taylor's story. She continues to cover cases, mostly from her hometown of Calgary. I'll be sure to drop a link in the show notes, and we'll talk more about her show at the end of today's episode. But I couldn't go on with Taylor's story without properly giving credit where it's due. And with that, let's get right back to the story. Taylor was kind, sweet, and gentle. Younger children, especially her siblings, seemed to flock to her. Her family describes her as having a gypsy soul, never afraid of an adventure or packing up and starting over in a new place. 
That was evident in the summer of 2013, when Taylor was just 19. She was one credit away from graduating high school, but Taylor had her sights set on an adventure. So she left Calgary, headed to BC, and joined the circus, working as a carny through the summer. Just as quickly as she had ran off and joined the circus, she returned to Calgary. It was now September of 2013. This would be around the time Taylor and Dustin met. But it wasn't Dustin Taylor was interested in at first. According to Adam on that episode of Evil Lives Here, he and Taylor briefly dated. But Adam and Taylor realized they were more friends than anything else, and soon Taylor began dating Dustin. Things moved rather quickly, and roughly a month after they started dating, they were already making plans for Taylor to move into Dustin's family home with his parents and siblings. And at some point, they did just that. When Taylor's family first met Dustin, they didn't know about his anger issues, and he seemed like an okay guy. Maybe a little cocky and arrogant, but what guy in his early 20s wasn't? Adam recalled on Evil Lives Here an incident early in their relationship when he, Dustin, and Taylor were riding in a car together, and he and Dustin were joking around about something, but it quickly turned into an argument. When Taylor tried to calm things down, Dustin turned his rage towards her. Adam stuck up for Taylor because no part of this argument really involved her, and Dustin punched his brother in the face. Adam then jumped out of a moving vehicle just to get away from his brother, and Dustin sped off. Of course, Taylor probably didn't tell her family about this incident, but it wasn't long before red flags started waving. Not long after Taylor moved in with Dustin's parents, her and Dustin got kicked out and went to stay temporarily in the basement of Taylor's grandmother's house. But that living situation wouldn't last long either. When on Christmas Day 2013, Taylor's grandma realized that the money she had been saving for a trip was missing. Taylor admitted that she had stolen the money for Dustin. They were told to leave and find somewhere else to stay. You see, by this point, it's believed that Dustin's steroid use had spiraled into a full-blown addiction. And at some point, Dustin became addicted to not only steroids, but also methamphetamines. This pattern of Taylor and Dustin bouncing around from place to place continued. At times, Taylor's family didn't hear from her, sometimes for months. She tried to hide her relationship with Dustin from them and a couple of times referred to him as her new boyfriend. Of course, they knew there was no new boyfriend and she was actually talking about Dustin. But it seemed Taylor didn't want them to be disappointed or upset with her. And she also felt as if she couldn't just give up and leave Dustin. She was forgiving by nature and just wanted him to get help. After the incident on Christmas, Taylor's family didn't see her again until April of 2014. By November of that year, Dustin and Taylor had gotten an apartment together and Dustin was working as a male stripper all the while spiraling farther into addiction. As much as Taylor tried to hide their relationship and the abuse that came with it, at times she did reach out to her family for help. And they were always there for her. In January of 2015, Taylor called her grandma desperate for a ride. Dustin had torn her car up and she was stranded in the middle of nowhere. 
Of course, her grandma came to her rescue, and Taylor openly admitted that Dustin had been abusing her. For a short time after that, she stayed with her mom and away from Dustin, but it didn't take long before he manipulated his way back into her life. From mid-2015 through 2016, Taylor and Dustin bounced around between Calgary and Vancouver. By Thanksgiving of 2017, it seemed things were looking up. Taylor was back in Calgary and spent the holidays with her family. But on New Year's Day, Taylor called her Aunt Kim. Dustin had left her stranded again, and she needed a ride. Taylor tried to hide the fact that Dustin was the one who put her in this position, but Kim knew. Although she didn't press the issue, because she could see Taylor was already upset and defeated. The cycle of abuse continued. Every time Taylor would try to make a clean break, Dustin would convince her that this time would be different. This time, he'd actually get help. If she'd just give him one more chance, he'd get it right. Taylor loved Dustin. Like everyone else in his life, she just wanted him to get better. And so she'd give him chance after chance, hoping that this would be it. This would be the time he'd actually get it right. But nothing could have been farther from the truth. By now, it was July of 2018. Taylor had just moved into a brand new apartment she had gotten all on her own. She was excited to start her new life, and Dustin, for the time being, was seemingly out of the picture. She was back in touch with her family and getting back on her feet. But there was a problem with that new apartment. Her furnace was broken and the heat was stuck on. It was summer and despite what you might think, Canadian summers get pretty toasty. The highs that July were in the upper 80s. Combine that with a running furnace and Taylor's apartment was like an oven. On July 18th, Taylor texted her grandma telling her about her apartment-turned-oven problem. Her grandma offered to get her a fan until the landlord could get it fixed. They made arrangements for it to be dropped off three days later, but for some reason those plans fell through. On July 25th, 2018, Taylor's grandma got a concerning message from Taylor at 1.27 a.m. on Facebook Messenger. Taylor told her not to text her phone because Dustin had showed up in the middle of the night really messed up on drugs. He had taken her phone and SIM card and she could only communicate through Messenger from her tablet. At 8 o'clock in the morning, her grandmother replied. She told Taylor that she should call the police if he showed up again and that she needed to follow through, if he did, and press charges. At 4 o'clock that afternoon, her grandmother dropped off the fan and a new phone for Taylor. At 5.46 p.m., her grandma texted her on her new phone to ask how the fan was working out. They chatted about the fan and Taylor told her she was supposed to be watching the dogs for Dustin's parents in a few days. Her grandma told her she didn't think this was a good idea because it would give Dustin a reason to be at the family home. But Taylor told her he wouldn't be there. As it turned out, Dustin's parents had a trip planned to Hawaii. They were going to a football conference for Dustin's youngest brother. The trip was roughly a week away, and Taylor had agreed to watch their four dogs. The family dog, a border collie named Odie, a white pit bull named Polaris who belonged to Taylor and Dustin, 
and two brown dogs that were Polaris's pups, which weren't exactly puppies anymore. One of them reportedly belonged to Dustin and another one to his brother. Taylor had agreed to babysit the dogs while Dustin's parents were away. Besides, Dustin wouldn't be around either because he had agreed to enter treatment for his substance abuse issues. The conversation between Taylor and her grandma ended with her grandma reiterating that babysitting the dogs was not a good idea. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following day on the 26th, Taylor's grandma texted her again. And then on the 27th, 28th, and 29th, but got no response from Taylor. As the days passed, her grandma began to reach out to family members, asking if they had heard from her, but no one had. Although they didn't seem as worried because Taylor had gone periods in the past without communication. But Taylor's grandma felt something was off. Her fears were confirmed on July 29th when Dustin messaged her on Facebook Messenger asking if she had heard from Taylor and expressing that he was worried about her. Something was definitely wrong. Taylor hadn't spoken to anyone in the family and she wasn't with Dustin. She texted Taylor once again on July 30th, warning her that if she didn't respond, she was going to call the police. Taylor didn't respond, and so her grandmother did just that. Officers were dispatched to Taylor's apartment. They knocked on the door, but no one answered, so an official missing persons report was filed. At 7.36 p.m. that day, Taylor's grandma got another Facebook message. This time, it was Dustin's mom, Sean, asking about Taylor, stating that Dustin was worried and that they had messaged Taylor but gotten no response. Sean was informed that a police report had been filed, and it's evident in her messages back to Taylor's grandma that she was very concerned for Taylor. According to CBC News, Sean only wasn't concerned for Taylor but also how Dustin would react to police contacting him about Taylor's disappearance. What Sean couldn't have known at the time is that the chain of events that unfolded over the next 24 hours had already been set in motion five days prior. As pressure mounted to locate Taylor, a 911 call was placed from outside Taylor's apartment at 10.50 a.m. on July 31, 2018. Dustin was on the line, and things started routine enough. Dustin was calm and gave basic information like the address to Taylor's apartment. When the dispatcher asked for the specific unit number, Dustin told him that he wanted to get to a certain unit, but he couldn't get through the second door. There was no desperation on Dustin's part, or the part of the operator at first. That was until the operator asked Dustin to explain what happened. Dustin responded, Um, I murdered my girlfriend in this apartment last week, and I murdered my parents this morning in their own home. The operator remained calm, although you could hear the urgency in his voice as he tried to get more details. 
This had gone from a routine call to a triple homicide in the span of seconds. Dustin told the dispatcher that he had a knife in his bag and a bottle of whiskey in his hand. He gave the address to his parents' home, a description of what he was wearing, and his location at the complex. The operator asked, What exactly happened this morning? Dustin responded, To be quite honest, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know why I did it, but I did it. What did you do? asked the operator. I killed both my parents. I stabbed both of my parents to death. Dustin admitted that he still had the knife and a bag he was carrying with him. The operator asked him to walk away from the bag. Dustin agreed and asked the operator if police would take him upstairs to tell Taylor goodbye. Officers arrived moments later and found Dustin with a bottle of whiskey he had been drinking. They took him into custody. He was placed in the back of a cop car where he repeatedly bitched about needing a cigarette. He was eventually transported to jail and placed briefly on suicide watch. At the scene, a bloody six-inch knife with white hockey tape on the handle was found in the black bag. The blood later came back as a match to Alan Penny Legion. Officers made their way up to Taylor's apartment. They found Taylor deceased in her bed, tucked under the blankets as if she were still sleeping. Her throat slit. Units were also dispatched to Dustin's parents' home. First responders found Al Penny Legion and Sean Boshuk deceased. Thankfully, the youngest of the children who was still living at home had gone to a friend's house and was located safe. Investigators pieced together evidence found at both scenes, video surveillance footage, Dustin's statements, electronic data, among other things, to paint a pretty clear picture of exactly what Dustin had done. Security footage showed Dustin at Taylor's apartment the day before she was murdered. She and Dustin were captured multiple times, going to and from her apartment. And at first, everything seemed okay. CBC News reported that all that changed around midnight on July 25th when Dustin pulled a knife on Taylor and took her cell phone away. As we discussed earlier, roughly an hour later at 1.27 a.m., Taylor messaged her grandma from her tablet. We know from messages sent to her grandmother that Dustin had agreed to enter treatment for his substance abuse issues. Later that night and in the early morning hours of July 26, between midnight and 4 a.m., Dustin and Taylor were seen entering and exiting the apartment four times. Taylor was visibly upset at this point, crying as she walked with Dustin. Taylor was last seen alive on that surveillance at 4.03 a.m. While we can't be sure of the sequence of events that followed, we do know that Taylor got ready for bed. According to Dustin, the two were snuggled up together in a spooning position. With no provocation whatsoever, Dustin began to choke Taylor. He then grabbed his knife and slit her throat. Dustin pulled the blankets over Taylor and tucked her in as if she were sleeping. Then he attempted to clean up a little bit. He took a bloody towel and one of Taylor's bloody socks, stuffed it into a bed in a box that had wheels he was using as a suitcase. At 5.14 a.m. on July 26, Dustin was captured leaving the apartment, this time alone, carrying a black bag and pulling that makeshift suitcase. He locked the door as he left. 
Police later found that bed in the box in the trunk of Dustin's car, containing the bloodstained towel and sock. DNA testing confirmed that the blood on the towel was a match to Taylor. After leaving Taylor's apartment, Dustin went to his parents' house. He had been staying there in the basement. As we know, he then started messaging members of Taylor's family, asking if they knew where she was. As the days passed, Dustin grew more agitated. Investigators believe Sean and Al began pressing Dustin, trying to get information about where Taylor was. While no one besides Dustin knows exactly what happened in the days and hours leading up to the murders, what we do know is that Sean last made contact with a friend and co-worker at 5.53 a.m. on July 31st. According to CBC News, sometime between 6 a.m. and 10.40, Dustin attacked his mother while she was in the kitchen, stabbing her six times. He drug her lifeless body across the kitchen and covered her with a plastic sheet. He was attempting to clean up the blood with a broom and a mop when Alan Penny Legion came downstairs. Al didn't make it off the stairs before Dustin attacked him too, stabbing him eight times at the bottom of the staircase. Dustin then drug his body into the downstairs bathroom. Calgary CTV News reported that at some point during the attack, the family dog Odie was also stabbed. Odie was found with Alan in a display of loyalty that only a dog can provide. He had never left his side. Odie was still alive but so gravely injured that he had to be euthanized. Dustin had also attempted to kill Polaris, the white pit bull he shared with Taylor, by slitting the dog's throat. Polaris was found in Sean's car, which was parked in the garage. The injuries required surgery, but Polaris survived and eventually found a happy home. After both of his parents were dead, Dustin tried to clean up blood from the bottom of the staircase where he had stabbed Alan, using a vacuum and carpet cleaner. There was so much blood, however, that at some point he abandoned the cleaning, shaved his head, showered, and changed clothes. He then stole Alan's car, phone, and credit cards and headed back to Taylor's apartment, making a quick pit stop at a nearby liquor store where he purchased a bottle of whiskey at 10.40 a.m. Ten minutes later, Dustin placed that 911 call outside of Taylor's apartment. In his rush to leave the murder scene at his parents' home, he had forgotten the key fob to Taylor's apartment. He sat down outside and took several shots of whiskey as he called 911. The amount of evidence against Dustin was overwhelming. But for all the evidence that existed, there was seemingly nothing in the way of a motive. It didn't make any sense. According to Dustin's own account, he and Taylor were cuddling in bed when he attacked her out of the blue. And his parents? The parents who had always loved and supported him and tried to get him help. Parents who would have done anything to help their son succeed. Dustin had murdered the three people who loved him most. But why? Many of Dustin's own family members, and certainly members of Taylor's family, knew that Dustin had outbursts of anger. But this? This was beyond anything anyone could have predicted. They would soon learn that the depths of Dustin's depravity ran deeper than anyone imagined. According to that episode of Evil Lives Here, 
After the police returned Al's vehicle to his sons, they were going through what was left behind when they stumbled upon what looked like a black ball of electrical tape. They thought it could have been evidence police had overlooked, so they whipped out a cell phone and took a video as they unraveled the ball. As they unraveled the tape, small scraps of paper began to fall out. They began to read what Dustin had written and at that point realized they had found what appeared to be a written confession. They immediately notified authorities. Investigators painstakingly pieced together 200 small scraps of paper. What Dustin had written was beyond disturbing. It read in part, In bed spooning as she loved so much, I reached my arm around her neck and began to squeeze. It went on to say, Pure want of blood, I ran my blade across her neck, wanting to feel cold steel running through human flesh. That urge to feel the soul of another human being leave their body. A sick mind coupled with years of heavy drug use had erased every ounce of humanity Dustin had left in him. Dustin Duthie initially pled not guilty and everyone was preparing to take the case to trial. But on March 2, 2021, he changed his plea to guilty to one count of first-degree murder for the murder of his stepfather, Alan Penny Legion, and two counts of second-degree murder for the murders of Taylor Toller and his own mother, Sean Boshuk. On March 26, both families were gathered in the courtroom for a sentencing hearing. There wasn't going to be much debate on what Dustin's actual sentence would be since Canadian law dictates that first-degree murder carries a mandatory minimum sentence of 25 years before an offender is eligible for parole. When it comes to second-degree murder, however, the period of parole ineligibility can be set anywhere from 10 to 25 years. According to the Calgary Herald, the Crown was seeking a life sentence with parole ineligibility of 25 years for Allen's murder, plus an additional parole ineligibility of 10 years for Taylor, ensuring that Dustin would spend 35 years behind bars without a chance at parole. Of course, the defense was asking for the mandatory minimum with a chance of freedom after 25 years. Claiming at the time of the killings, Dustin was experiencing mental health issues that diminished his moral culpability. The families of both victims were given the opportunity to speak and over a dozen impact statements were read. Sean and Alan's youngest son, Jordan, spoke about the loss of their parents. He said he finds it hard to go to bed at night because he has a bottomless pit in his heart. And that quote, Dustin's decision to take my parents has caused an everlasting wake of emotional turmoil. Adam stated, you broke thousands of hearts and destroyed communities. Members of Taylor's family also spoke. Taylor's mom, Joanne, said a piece of her heart will always be broken. She went on to say, this I cannot explain in words. We will never again have her here with us, enjoying her smile, her stories, or her love. Taylor's Aunt Kim spoke of Taylor's last moments, stating, Was she scared? Did she try to call out for any of us? Did she want her mom? How betrayed she must have felt. Kim went on to address Dustin directly as she told him it was time for him to fight his demons and turn his life around. 
Dust and Duthy sobbed at times, and when it was time for him to speak, he did express remorse, but never referred to Sean, Alan, or Taylor by name. He said in part, If I could take back everything I did and give up my life and bring back three beautiful fucking souls, pardon my language. The judge took some time to reflect on the facts of the case and the many victim impact statements. Court was adjourned. Dustin would learn his fate in a few short weeks. On April 8, 2021, everyone gathered in the courtroom once again for the final ruling. Justice Glenn Pullman addressed the argument made by the defense of Dustin's diminished moral culpability. He referred to a psychological assessment which found Dustin had been, quote, exaggerating and embellishing his symptoms in relation to a mental disorder. He read directly from the assessment. Although Mr. Duthie was suffering from a diagnosable mental disorder at the time of the indexed offenses, that mental disorder was drug-induced and ultimately did not render him incapable of appreciating the nature, quality, and wrongfulness of his behavior. And further, his conduct before and after the killings does not show someone operating in a psychotic or delusional manner of the nature that would diminish his moral culpability. Justice Pullman stated, Duthie committed three consecutive murders of members of his intimate circle, each exceeding in brutality and violence than the one before it. The callous abandonment of Miss Toller's body for five days, followed by the murders of two more family members, are uniquely reprehensible. The effect of this killing spree on friends and family of the victims is incalculable. Dustin Duthie was sentenced to the maximum, a life sentence with no possibility of parole for 35 years. He will be eligible for parole when he is roughly 60 years old. Friends of Sean Boshuk remembered her as a brilliant nurse who was well-respected, kind, and always welcoming. Alan Penny Legion left a lasting impression on the many kids he coached over the years. Calgary Hilltoppers football team president spoke to the Calgary Sun about Alan and said, I can't say enough about the man. He definitely was a man of integrity. He went on to say, He was one of the most tremendous coaches in community football I had met so far. Taylor Toller was just 25 years old when she was taken from all of those who knew and loved her. Taylor was forgiving, kind, and always there for her friends. Her legacy lives on through the Taylor Toller Memorial Fund, which supports organizations fighting both domestic violence and substance abuse. You can learn more at taylortollerfund.org. If you or someone you know are caught in a cycle of abuse, please reach out. Resources and help are available 24-7 in the U.S. at thehotline.org. For our Canadian friends, a full list of resources is available at www.justice.gc.ca. Once again, I can't recommend enough that y'all check out the podcast A Million Other Choices. Kim Toller does an amazing job of presenting the facts of these cases while always remaining respectful of the victims. You can find her on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And I'll be sure to drop a link in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on this case 
or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you an all new case next week and I can't wait. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.